was one day uh, back in July of 2016. I came into the office of the church like I do every day. And Brent was in his office next door. He had just started, so he was next door. And I went in, and I sat at my desk, and I went kind of through some morning routines. And at some point, I pulled out my phone, or maybe I pulled it up on a computer now. I don't remember, but and I went through my Twitter feed, right? And that's when I heard the news, or that's when I found out the news of the shooting of Philando Castile by a police officer named Geronimo Yanez. Philando was pulled over for a busted brake light the night before. And he informed the police officer that he was licensed to carry and that he did have a gun. But the officer had ordered him to get his ID. And so when he reached to get his wallet, uh, the, the officer thought he was reaching for that gun and he shot him four times. And this wasn't the first incident where, where police were being accused of shooting somebody because of their color of skin. It had kind of been happening a lot and it happened a little bit. It's been happening since, right? But this time, on this occasion, on this day, the news hit me harder than any of the other times. Because there on Twitter, on my social media feed, I saw the video that Philando's girlfriend had taken immediately after it happened. I saw exactly what was going on. I saw him dying in the passenger seat or in the driver's seat next to her. And in the video, everything was confused. There was a child screaming in the background, a child that had been in the car when it happened. The officer was yelling. He was still at the window, and he's yelling at the top of his lungs, and it sounded like he was crying a little bit too. It sounded like he was shocked. I could hear the fear and the disbelief that was in this man's voice. Now, her video didn't show the shooting. I didn't see that happen. There was no telling exactly what had transpired moments before who was in the right, who was in the wrong. But listen, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. I remember just sitting there in shock for a while. I remember like grieving for the family, for the woman, for her child. And the tears really started coming when I realized that the cop was likely scared. I told you I could hear it in his voice and he was scared. He was likely scared and on heightened guard because of the color of Philando Castile's skin. And it hit me all at once when I realized that if he was on heightened guard, it wasn't just on him. It was on our society that taught, that taught him to be that way. And I realized that, that if it was part, if it was on our society, if it was part of our society that feared black men, that got him to that point, then I had likely contributed to the stigma that had got us there. I had likely contributed through thoughtless jokes on my own part or a lack of care about the everyday like prejudices that I had encountered for years and done nothing about. And I just sat there and I cried for a bit in my office. I remember really feeling like Philando Castile's blood was on my hands. It didn't matter whose fault it was there. I just remember feeling like it was on my hands. And I remember that scene in Isaiah 6. It's, it's famous. I bring it up a lot. But it's where Isaiah meets the Lord and he falls on his, for, on his face and he proclaims, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. 
It's as if like this undoing before God wasn't just about his own condition before God, but it was also about the condition of the world around him. And I felt it that morning. And all I could do at that moment on that day was grieve. All I could do was lament our collective uncleanliness and how the depths of my own sin, a lot of it that I was even unaware of, was part of the problem. And I had to grieve that I, I definitely had not been a part of a solution. And it felt like a funeral. In Jamar Tisby's new book, it's called The Color of Compromise. I'm reading through it right now, but he, he writes this. He says, it seems like most Christians in America don't know how bad racism really is. So they don't respond with the necessary urgency. Even when Christians realize the need for change, they often shrink back from the sacrifices that transformation entails. Maybe this is because we don't get the reality of our brokenness and our broken condition and our broken circumstance. Maybe it hasn't hit us hard enough, so we haven't stopped long enough to let it sink in. I think we may care. We may care somewhat at least, and and maybe we even think that change is necessary, but we just get on to the problem solving, and we start problem solving in our own way and in our own time. Like we might look to a public policy or some other system to make a kind of like a blanket change for everybody. We may cast a vote for change. We may give to a charity that would help with change, But, but listen, all the politics all the fights for forced change, they'll never affect the change we really want because true change by force doesn't work. It says John Perkins write in his memoir, Let Justice Roll Down. He says, true Christian change works more like an old oak tree in spring when the new life inside pushes off the old dead leaves that still hang on seems like we're usually just busy trying to keep all the leaves on the tree. Just trying to keep things looking nice while we wait for a change to come. But instead of problem solving, instead of waiting for some sort of corporate change to take place, we, as a church, desperately need to get in touch with the reality of our brokenness, with the reality of the brokenness of the world around us as well. We need to grieve. We need to lament. We need to let the dead leaves on the tree fall off, right? We need to let them fall if new life is going to burst forth. We need to have a funeral. So we're picking up in Amos chapter 5 this week as we continue through this book. If you don't know where it is, it's right between Joel and Obadiah. That may not help you a lot. They're really small books. They're after Psalms and before the New Testament. Amos chapter 5. And Amos chapter 5 starts with a lamentation known as a funeral dirge. And it's like a song. So first, Amos here in his first couple verses, he sings his own short lamentation for Israel. 5 verses 1 through 2, we hear it. It says this, it says, Hear this word that I take up over, take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fall. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. 
Amos' own short song at the beginning of this chapter is like a shocking, it's a shocking picture. And, and he sings of Israel being a fallen virgin. One commentator said it like this. He said, it's a picture of a young girl in the prime of her life, about ready to enter the most exciting and fulfilling times of her life when tragedy strikes and wastes her potential. It's an incredibly sad story. That's Amos's short lamentation. And the rest of the passage, it is God who delivers the dirge through his prophet Amos. So we imagine the scene. Amos is likely surrounded by listeners. And instead of just going on with the preaching and just going on yelling prophecy and judgment, he breaks out into a song and he sings a loud, somber song or he breaks out into poetry which we read here in Amos 5, 3 through 27. I'm going to read this for us. For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and the Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes up up upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves, reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, You have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek God and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. And if a man fled from a lion and a bear met, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. 
and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fat and animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and suffering during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikketh your king and Kion your star god, your images that you made for yourself, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. That's rough. That's really hard. It's so striking to me, like I already said, that that this is God speaking through Amos. This is God singing a funeral dirge over his people. The reality of the current situation and of the coming events elicits a lament from God. And rightly, it should elicit lament from the hearer. The weight and the depth of their own sin should be recognized so that they would grieve for the reality of their own circumstance and for their own condition and for how they are really now. The funeral dirge, this lamentation should expose the people's status before God. It should like shake them out of their stupor for things are not what they seem, right? Things are not what they think they are. They're not as they seem. Their large houses, their lavish lifestyles, like amongst the wealthy, that doesn't indicate righteous. It doesn't indicate justice. It doesn't indicate beauty. They don't, none of those things indicate God's blessing. And the lament unpacks a picture of the reality of Israel's present condition. God does not accept the sacrifices and the offerings that they bring to Bethel to try to make themselves look like the people of God because he sees the like more revealing injustices that they commit, the fruit that they are really bearing. He sees how they reject the prophets and afflict the righteous, as it said in verse 10. He sees the building of their big, beautiful dream homes with the money that they make by trampling over the poor and exacting taxes on them that they can't afford. Verse 11, he sees the bribes that they take and he sees how they turn aside the needy. See, God sees through the pretty facade that Israel has constructed. And and I think it's usually the case that the powerful and the privileged, the privileged and wealth, socioeconomic status, race, religion, or whatever else, I think it's the case that they believe that they are making beautiful things because they are free to pursue what they want from their place of power and their place of privilege and what they see they like. But what God reveals here is that we may think we are making beautiful things, but beauty is not in the the eye of the beholder alone. Beauty and justice, they both have to do with things being in right relationship to each other. Things being the way they were created to be by God who is just. And what is truly beautiful and what's truly just is beautiful and just for all, not just a few. So this funeral dirge, 
It depicts the reality of the brokenness of their present condition, but it also depicts the coming day of the Lord, the coming judgment of God. And in Amos 5, 16 through 17, we just read, it says, In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst. I will pass through your midst is a throwback to Exodus 12, verse 12. Back when God is delivering the instructions uh, for the first Passover. It's that night in Egypt when Pharaoh would finally let people, let God's people go. And Exodus 12, 12 is where God says to Moses, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. With that throwback, we see that the funeral for Israel will be much like that of Egypt. God is likening it to that which took the lives of the Egyptian children, all the firstborn, even of the livestock. He's likening it it to when a great cry went up from Egypt in the night because there was not a house, the scripture says, there was not a house where somebody was not dead. And the truth of the matter is that in Egypt that night, God passed through their midst and a lot of people died. Even babies, even those we would say are innocent because God was set on delivering the oppressed. And Egypt, the oppressor, was left in grief. And that's what he's likening Israel's funeral to as well. This is a funeral song. Lamenting the reality of the coming judgment because God's people went after things that led to death instead of going after God who makes all things beautiful and who rules with justice and mercy and who leads us to life. This is somber. This is sad. This is real. This is final. And there's nothing that I or you can do about it. God laments for his people and for those who've been oppressed because he has been rejected. It's a funeral. There will be tears and there will be wailing. You know, I've I've actually never known grief over death, honestly. Like I've never had a family member or a friend of mine who's close to me die. I've, I've not had that happen yet in my life. But I've been around others as they've lost somebody close. And my observation is that a lot of us are not very good at allowing ourselves to grieve. But we do need to grieve. And we do need to lament. We do need funerals. I attended a funeral very recently, just a few weeks ago. It was a, a pretty sweet time of like storytelling and sharing about the person's life. And funerals are a place where we do that, where we actually hear stories. Sometimes it's a place to grieve. It's a place to grieve where those stories went wrong, Right? It's also a place to grieve for the parts that we played in the life of the other where maybe it wasn't so good. And funerals leave us knowing that regardless, there's little that we can do about it now. We can't go back in time. The person is gone. There is finality, and so we mourn. Church, I think we need to hold a funeral. 
I think we need a funeral for Philando Castile and for Tamir Rice and the many others who've died because of the racism that saturates, saturates our society. We need to hear their stories. We need to grieve for them and their families and grieve for the part that we have all played in their death. We need to hold a funeral for our country's racial history and for the part the church has played in that. We need to hold a funeral for those who were lynched, for those who were enslaved. We need to grieve and lament for the sin and the brokenness in the church that has contributed to the reality of our present circumstances with the racial dividedness in our country. We need to grieve for how we have failed to be God's people who make God known to all, who make his grace and his mercy and his love and his patience and his beauty-making known to all people. We have failed, and we need to grieve for that. Su Chan Ra, in his book, Prophetic Lament, he says this of, funeral, of, of, of the funeral dirge, that it does not allow for the denial of death, nor does it allow for the denial of culpability in that death. The funeral dirge recognizes suffering, but also recognizes sinful behavior that contributed to that suffering. Maybe what keeps us from the funeral as a church and as the church, maybe what keeps us from actually hearing the stories and grieving, from recognizing the reality of our circumstances and the brokenness and sin that we've taken part in, maybe what keeps us from confessing our culpability is that we're scared to death that if we do, it will all end. It'll be the end of us. Maybe we're afraid that we'll lose some credibility. Maybe we're afraid that we'll lose some power. But listen, this is the really important part because there's a lot of good news here. We can afford to come to grips with the truth. We can afford to be laid bare. We can afford to die a death, whether that be socially or physically or in any other way. We can afford to suffer whatever may come to our church organizations. We can afford to suffer whatever may come to our political parties. We can lose power because God's power is not hitched to ours. I mean, don't we know who God is? Don't we know who our God is? He made the seasons, right? He made the seasons so that the leaves and the seeds and the nuts fall and they feed the ground only to spring to life after the winter. I love that David Crowder song, Holy Yours, where he says, a certain sign of grace is this. From the broken earth, flowers come up pushing through the dirt. He's the God who became man and he died on a cross only to come back to life after three days in the tomb. And he is the one who works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, it says in Romans 8.28. And when Adam and Eve failed in the beginning, when Adam and Eve failed miserably and their sins condemned them, he's the one in his, in his kindness who sacrificed an animal and clothed them and made a promise to crush the head of the serpent. So we can afford to confess. We can afford to come to grips with the reality of our circumstance and with the truth and with the reality of our condition before him because God is most certainly aware of it 
and it is his kindness that will meet us there. God reminds Israel of his kindness at the end of this lament in verse 525. He says, Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Meaning, it wasn't through your sacrifices and your offerings that I sustained you, then that's not how I sustain you now. It was through my kindness towards you that I made you my people. See, it's when we come to grieve. It's when we come to lament with a full stop that we come to realize the gravity of our own condition and our own circumstance and the reality of our own uncleanliness and that uncleanliness of the world around us. It's when we grieve and it's when we lament that we realize that we deserve death, but also that we can bear it. Because it's also from a place of lament and grief that we encounter the reality of the kindness of Jesus Christ. What does it matter if we come together and sing of his mercy and his love and his grace, if we don't know the depths of our need for him, if we don't know the breadth of his kindness for us. You know, Jesus went to some funerals when he walked the earth, and they grieved him deeply. When he went to Lazarus, his friend who was dead, he stopped, and Jesus wept. And the scripture says that he was deeply moved. And before his own death, he wept to the point of crying blood in the garden. But Jesus never went to a funeral and left those who were dead, dead. He always brought them back to life. Death happened with its finality. And Jesus let there be a full stop for grieving. But then he always defeated death. And then he did it once and for all. And when we think about like all that's tied up in the cross through his death and his resurrection, we find his kindness. Paul said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And check out what he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, and he's speaking of a letter that he had sent some rebukes in before, right? Even if I grieved you with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. His kindness, the kindness of Jesus Christ, leads us to repentance. But we don't recognize the greatness of his kindness until we are grieved by the reality of our own brokenness and sin and our culpability and the sins and the brokenness of the world around us. It's Black History Month. It's at the end of Black History Month. And we have a history that still needs to be dealt with as a church. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote this in in a letter from a Birmingham jail. He says, I have traveled the length and breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states. On sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I have looked at the south's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. 
and I have beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. And over and over I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barnett dripped the words of interposition and nullification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? Yes, these questions are still in my mind. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. Now, church, I know that many of you were not alive during the civil rights movement. I know that. Neither was I. And it doesn't really matter what you think of Martin Luther King's personal life or of his theology. It doesn't matter. He was and remains right about the laxity of the church. And the church that was complicit in the oppression of our African-American brothers and sisters. And honestly, the oppression of just about any minority for that matter. That church that was complicit in the oppression of, of these people hasn't vanished. It's not gone. And we at Redemption Church in the city of Augusta, Georgia, where prejudice is alive and well, are very much the heirs of that heritage. And the fact is that the world doesn't need a church on a power trip that can't be honest about the past, that can't be honest about our present condition, and that can't be talked to about the reality of our circumstances. The world desperately needs a church that will stop trying to play God in the world and start letting Jesus like, just shine all the way through it. The world desperately needs us to reflect the grace of God by letting him push letting him push flowers up through the dirt and the mess of our own brokenness. The world desperately needs to see Jesus in our weeping with those who weep and in our mourning with those who mourn. So what's it like for us to sit at the funeral and hear the stories? What does it look like for us to lament and to grieve? And we can be honest, we have more to grieve than just our racial divisions. Like, what about how Christians have treated the poor and the homeless? Is it possible that we've been okay with, like, giving to charity but not with doing justice? Is it possible that our lifestyles, like our products and our stuff that we think are beautiful and things that we think we need, is it possible that it comes at the cost of the welfare of another, whether it's in this country or somewhere else? How have we at the church treated the LGBT community? How have we exploited the incarcerated? How much do we love to take the lives of those who have done wrong? How much do we like to speak out against abortion, but then fund and hold up with our behaviors like the systems of a society that finds so many in a situation where it seems like abortion is the only option? How have we marginalized people with disabilities? I know that's a lot of touchy subjects. But today, I think we should really take our time with that. Today is not about explaining our side. It's not about explaining ourselves. It's not about justifying ourselves. It's not even about pleading for a better future. If you were at a funeral, you couldn't do any of those things with the dead. 
Now, the place that we're in and the place that I think we need to be, as much as I don't want us to have to be there, is about being quiet. It's about grieving. It's about lamenting and about letting reality sink in all the way. Like Isaiah, it's about realizing, woe is me, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live a people among a people who are of unclean lips. So my plea to you this morning is to come to a full stop this week. As a church, we come to a full stop this week so that we can begin to grieve. My plea with you is to spend time on purpose, prayerfully listening to God, and asking him how, or asking him to reveal how you are culpable and the reality of the brokenness and the sins of this world. Spend some time listening to the stories of the broken people around us, to the broken people who are outside the church, those who have been crushed by the church and by God's people. Listen to their stories, listen to their hearts. And I want you to do this together. I want us to do this together. So we also bear one another's burdens. We point each other to Christ. We can breathe. We can grieve together. We go to funerals together to grieve together. We can grieve together. So my plea is that we grieve and lament and lament on behalf of the church and for our own sins. And that doesn't really sound like a lot of good news this morning. I'm aware. It doesn't sound like good news because it doesn't make us skip out of here in happiness. But the good news is that we can grieve and we can lament in the hands of Jesus, knowing that his kindness will meet us in our grief and lead us to repentance and to salvation. It's as Psalm 51.17 says, which we read earlier, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. My prayer is that in our grief, he would give you, he would give us such a heart. We're going to move into a time of response as we do each week. The band's going to come and they're going to lead us in in worship and and praise and singing. And it's a time for you to stand and sing, but maybe it's a time for you to sit and reflect and pray and begin to reflect and ask God just that. Help me grieve. Help me See the realities of my own condition. Help me see the realities of the condition of the world around me. It's a time for us to begin grieving. During this time, we'll sing, but we'll also have a time where you can give your tithes and offerings at baskets in the back. And we also take communion together every week, and there's really good news in that, right? You can come down either one of these aisles. We'll dip some bread in the wine and the juice. And this represents the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And when we do this, we are remembering and proclaiming together and to one another that Jesus Christ has gone out for our salvation, that he has met us in kindness while we were dead set against him. And he is Lord and Savior, and he is worthy of our worship in our whole life. And we can follow him. We can trust him. We're just remind each other of the good news of Jesus Christ in our actions. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of this church or not, we would invite you to come and take with us and proclaim the good news of Jesus in the taking.
I'm going to pray for us and we'll move into the next time. Our Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that Jesus came, that he lived, and that he grieved with us, and that he died, and that he rose again, and that he brought new life, new life that we can take part in. I thank you that you have met us in your kindness. Lord, I pray that you would awaken our hearts to be able to comprehend your kindness by letting us get in touch with the reality of the depth of our own sin, the reality that we are sinners and that we deserve death and that we have all become corrupt together, your scripture says. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to grieve, that you would help us to grieve, that you'd help us to lament, that you'd help us to to open our ears and just listen to the world around us who's saying that they need us to grieve, that they need us to deal with our own sin. We listen to you first and foremost who's saying, you're my people and I came for you and I'm just, and I'm the justifier of you, and I've rescued you from darkness so that you would be the light, so that you would bring justice, so that you would make things beautiful with me. Lord, help us hear that call, and help us realize how much we desperately need Jesus. And help us realize that we can confess our brokenness to you, and that you'll heal us. Lord, I pray that you would work through that to lead us to repentance and to lead us to salvation. And Lord, that salvation would spring up in and through this church into downtown Augusta as we just spend some time grieving and lamenting. Lord, just lead us through that season. In Jesus' name, amen.